Well, good morning, and it's good to be here. Good to see you. Uh, I've got a couple things I'd maybe like to share after the service, too, we could discuss. Uh, well, I'll just share it now. Uh, it might be relevant to um, what we're going to talk about. Some of the, in some of the larger churches, there are people who feel that the congregation is not taking sufficient precautions wearing masks. Uh, my sister um, and her husband were going to visit here today, and there is an opportunity to perhaps have people come this way, either from Lexington or maybe perhaps even from another church or whatever, where they where to be with the congregation where there is respect for social distancing and mask wearing, not required necessarily, but you know to be a little more. They feel a little safer in that. Um, it's hard in a larger congregation with the milling and the things that go around to, to always be safe. Um, anyway, that's a possibility that you could pray for and, and consider as a, a smaller church, uh, as opening that up if you have no other people that might feel the same way. Uh, because we are getting small here. Yeah. <laughs> well, the text today is from 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Uh, George shared from the New King James Version for the Scripture reading. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians, Do you not know that you are a temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. The, there were divisions in the church at Corinth. Um, some said, I follow Paul. Some said, I follow Apollos. Uh, others said, oh, I follow Jesus. And in response to those divisions in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul uplifted the cross of Christ. He felt clearly that the gospel was what unifies human beings. And when self and pride are put down, unity in diversity can take place. Even though we have various gifts, none of us have all the gifts of the Spirit of God, even though the Spirit of God dwells in us. He speaks prior to this text of the kind of foundation. He says he and Apollos and others, they laid the foundation which is Christ. And he says how we build upon that foundation is very, very important. Going up, verse 11, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who He is and what He does, is the foundation of the church. We take our identity and we take our mission from who He is. Everything grows from this foundation. We don't have to go looking around for a different identity or a different mission. And specifically as Seventh-day Adventists, we believe that the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 uh, define that mission. That's what it means to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Revelation 14, in this last day context, is God's response to the work of evil powers. We would call it, for those who don't understand Scripture very much, we could leave it at that, but it's symbolized by these beastly powers, this conglomeration of political and religious entities in the last days that will war against those who keep the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus. And that's what the war is about. If you keep the testimony of Jesus, faith in Jesus and the gospel, 
and the commandments of God, you are the subject of Satan's wrath uh, and anybody who follows him. He don't, he's not warring against the others because <laughs> they're all part of his side. So uh, if you ask, what is the devil doing and what are we doing? That really tells you. We have this responsibility of loyalty and faithfulness to God in all things. Is that all right? Oh, sorry. Okay, thank you, George. Yeah, I've noticed in my recordings that I have an S sound as well. Uh, what will become of me? So, in this um, period of, of the last days, we know that the center, the war, the spiritual warfare uh, is around those issues. We often become the center of focus. Humanity becomes a center of focus because we love our lives and we don't want to lose them, and, and rightfully so. God values life greatly, so much so that we are called the very temple of God. The union of the soul with our Creator and our Redeemer is everything in the spiritual life, everything, abiding in Him. Um, we, religion is not some set of rules or commands that exist outside of a living walk with the Lord in His presence. But the devil hates, most of all, Christ himself. And he, the issue with last day things, and many people I think become confused about this, they see big government as the enemy. In gospel terms and in biblical terms, the only reason the state or the governing power is really the enemy of the church is because religious entities use it to persecute others who don't share their faith. We see that during the period of uh, the Inquisition and so on, uh, it, during the reign of, uh, of the papacy. We believe, based on the book of Revelation, that that deadly wound uh, of the papacy will be healed. And again, the church, both the papacy and uh, apostate Protestantism, and that's what Revelation is very much about, is about the apostasy of the general church overall uh, in following this false worship and this false beast, being deluded, as to what their true mission and identity is, uh, we we see too often that in, in the remarks of many other Christians, it's 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 opposing the church against the government. Actually, in, in the Book of Revelation, the church is in collusion with the government. Uh, those that have fallen away, but they don't perceive themselves as falling away. Um, it is said of the beast in Revelation three, "Who can stand against him?" You know. There is this opposition of those of, of worship. Here we are considered to be the temple of God with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What are they? Well, they have an indwelling of a spirit as well. And it is the devil's object, most of all, from the very beginning in chapter 12, you see that in Revelation. He's, he couldn't get Jesus. He tried to kill him at the birth of Jesus. He opposes him. So then he goes to make war with the remnant of her seed, that is the church, down through the ages. You as the temple of God and the Holy Spirit, then He will attack. He will attack anyone who is abiding in Christ. So we have this foundation of Jesus. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. For the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. 
If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. This work that he's referring to is the work of the apostles, the work of those who are building on the foundation which is laid. And it is also to grow up. The church itself is made up of individual members, but the church itself as a whole body is considered to be this temple of God. It doesn't compete with the temple of God in heaven. Some have said, oh, well, we're the temple of God. There is no temple in heaven. Well, that's not true. The Bible is very, very clear. The book of Revelation is very clear about that too. The temple of God, the ark of His covenant was seen open in heaven. What I want to get to with this text is that individuals who are against the vaccine are using this text saying, my body is a temple of God and I have a right they're, they're really even, they're claiming their right over the temple almost greater than God's right over the temple. You know, my body is mine and I can do what I want to do with it. They're, they're not pro-choice in the sense of abortion. They're pro-choice in the sense of being against the vaccine because they say the vaccine will violate my body. I, I find that argument suspect because of the general lifestyle of so many of these people who say that. Non-Christians, there's non-Christians who are anti-vaxxers, but live a lifestyle. Is their body the temple? Is that what they wake up in the morning? I'm going to glorify God in my body, as another scripture says. Glorify your body, whether you eat or drink, glorify God in your body, because it is the temple of the Lord. God has a very strong warning. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. I don't know if you feel holy every morning when you wake up, but that's what he's saying. If the Spirit of God dwells in you, God counts you as holy, and He will protect you as His own. So that even if you were to die, and He he says in another place, Don't fear those who can kill the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. And hell's another subject, of course, but that's the fear. We don't need to fear others who can kill us because God preserves his temple. And how do we know that? Because, well, let's let's look at the text real quickly in John. Um, Jesus says of himself, now Jesus is the foundation, remember. The Jews said to him, what sign do you show us that your authority, as, as your authority for doing these things? He had just cast the money changers out of the temple of God because they were defiling it with their buying and their selling, and they were extorting people with the offerings. People were coming, and you'd bring an offer. Maybe you, didn't, you traveled a long way to come to the temple on, on the day of Passover, and you couldn't, uh, you couldn't bring a sheep. You couldn't bring a, so you would purchase one, and they. They took advantage in the pricing and um, they used it as an opportunity to make money. Avarice was the spirit there, greed. And Jesus turned these out and he says, um, Stop making my father's house a place of business. He says, uh, That perhaps has a word for the commercialization of Christianity today. But. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will rise it up. There's probably more than 18 instances in the Gospel of John where there's a conflict between Jesus saying something literally and they misunderstanding him. Misunderstanding Jesus was a common problem in his life and in his ministry. 
and yet he didn't work overly so to, to dispel that. He often spoke in figurative language, and he had reasons for that. He spoke in parables, because having ears, he says, they're not willing to hear, and having eyes, they're not able to see. But he did say that to those whom it was given, his disciples particularly, these things were clearly explained. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it took 36 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? This is not an insignificant event, because you'll meet it again in the Gospel of John at the end. They used this against Jesus. He's against the temple. He's against the law. And they brought false witnesses forward and said, this man said he would destroy the temple at his trial. Why would Jesus say things like this if he knew it was going to be brought against him? You know, well, he stood for the truth, despite the consequences. The, there were things about himself and his father that must be revealed for our salvation. And he revealed those things at any risk to himself. But he wasn't an in-your-face. I don't think Jesus was an in-your-face kind of guy. He, there was no selfishness about it. There was no pride about it. He wasn't trying to take a stand in order to bring attention to himself or to show that he was more righteous than others. It was always about love for the other. But he was speaking of the temple of his body, John says. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Jesus did not unnecessarily, and I want to link these two, our, our bodies are the temple of God. Jesus says, he referred to his own body as a temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. This has significance for me on, on several levels with regard to the virus. They are saying today, many Christians, and I don't have any doubt that some of them are sincere and conscientious, that if I take the vaccine, either because it has uh, in some involvement with uh, aborted fetal tissue, or in some falsely believe the misinformation that it will affect our DNA, they feel that they will be defiled by it, perhaps even made unclean by this vaccine. Uh, I took the risk. And let's, let's suppose I'm wrong. Let's suppose you, you who have here been vaccinated, suppose you're wrong, and down the line, it actually does something to your body. You, if you made your decision based in good conscience and based upon the best information that you had available and, and made it based upon the fact that those who are dying of the virus are... are exponentially higher than anybody who would suffer side effects from the vaccine. Well, let's suppose you're wrong. Jesus says, destroy this body in three days, I will raise it up. Jesus didn't offer his own body to be destroyed. He didn't want to be destroyed. He didn't want anybody to be guilty of putting him to death. He wasn't being presumptuous in, in that effect. But he says, God is sovereign over these things. And when I give my body to be sacrificed, for the sake of others, it's still this. God will raise this temple up again, and we have that hope. And I would say the same thing of those who who have the virus, who are suffering with the virus. So maybe somebody's listening to this who, who actually is concerned about living through the next few days, through faith in Christ, through a union with Him through faith, by His grace, we can have the hope of everlasting life and eternity. We don't need to be living constantly day by day in fear. 
we want to use common sense. We want to use preventative measures. We're, you know, three of you here are wearing masks, uh, and that's uh, three out of five. You know, so um, we're we're all doing what we think is right, not only to protect ourselves but to protect others. I think there there can be a little. It is suspicious to me, and again. Oh, I'm not wanting to defile the temple of God. And I said this to you earlier during Sabbath school. Um, there are people out there who smoke and drink and, you know, they've, they've let their lives go in a direction of self-indulgence that there's no reason to, to think that they consider their body to be the temple of God. And yet they don't want to be defiled, you know, or they don't want, want to run the risk of having this thing in their body. Uh, do they do the same due diligence with all the other medications that their unhealthy lifestyle has created? There's people on, what, a dozen different medications, you know? Does that mean that they, they won't uh, take chemo if they have cancer, that they won't take radiation? There's some side effects. You've had, uh, Debbie's had cancer. She's taken these things, and you've survived. You had to take some drastic measures, didn't you? Yeah. You know, some people could say, oh, man, you're messing around with the temple of God. Well, it, you know, does anybody, when we look at our bodies, I mean, it's a temple of God. You know, some of it's gotten out of shape. You know what I mean? We're, we're not looking at a glorious thing here that's in all of its perfection. That's not what it means that we're the temple of God. There's nobody who can appear in the eyes of God as faultless and as blameless and as pure. He says, Who's you, you are his temple, you are holy, and God says it's so great that he will destroy him who destroys the temple of God. It's not simply self-destruction either. Yes, we can be destroying the temple of God because we're not taking good care of it. But those who attack the church, and those who attack the temple of God, which is holy, will have to deal with God himself. I want to turn now to Romans uh, 13. <clears throat> There's been some discussion about this protection. Uh, how can we protect ourselves? Um, and does the, the government have a duty to protect its citizenry and its people? And at what point do we offer disobedience? Before I get into that, let me. I, I just remembered something. I, another argument has been uh, of Daniel and his his three friends who would not eat of the king's. Uh, meal, you know, the, because it was it was not the best diet for them. Uh, they do, and this this brings again up that idea of defilement. There's a presumption in all of that that somehow when we've done our very best, we have arrived. You know, uh, I don't believe that. I, I don't. In, in today, <laughs> you go go buy canned goods unless you're eating organic. And even if you're eating organic, how can you be absolutely sure that there isn't something in there that's going to hurt you? Are you going to stop eating? You know, what, what little indulgence? How do you know what's going to set off that little cancer cell that's been waiting all of your life that you inherited genetically? And suddenly, through your lifestyle choice, boom, here it comes. What is your responsibility for those things? Well, we, we do our best. Um, but our best is not good enough. Our best is never good enough to give us entrance into the kingdom of God. We need this righteousness of Christ uh, every day. 
uh, I could give you a quotation from uh, Selected Messages, Volume 1, which says, even our praise, and I've quoted it to you here before, even our praise and thanksgiving, our prayers do not ascend in spotless purity to the Lord, even though they come from this temple of God, and even inspired by the Holy Spirit. Why, the writer says, because they come through the corrupt channel of humanity. There's a channel, there's, there's something about our humanity that's been defiled since we fell from God in sin. And no, nothing that we do can remove that defilement except the blood of Christ. And the removal of that defilement right now is not that we now are existentially here in this present time and moment actually pure and clean. It is a declaration. It is an accounting of righteousness, not a making of righteousness in terms of restoring our, our bodies are not restored. Until Jesus, when Jesus comes, then immortality will be put on. We're not immortal now. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15. The seed that is sown is not the same plant that comes up. You know, that which is buried in the ground. So he is preparing something better for us. Until then, we're here. And we live not only our individual lives, but we live them together. Life together, as Bonhoeffer spoke of in his book. How shall that be? Well, God has actually instituted government to keep us from wiping each other out on the face of the earth, uh, and to provide, what, what is the motto of the police? You read on the policeman, serve and protect, serve and protect. That's a government mandate. The government is mandated by the people to produce mandates for the people. I'll say that again. The government is mandated through elected, election representative government is mandated by the people to be representative and to then take the mandate to protect and serve. Well, especially in the United States now we're talking. Other governments have different ideas sometimes. Revelation 13 says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. Do you know who the governing authorities were when he wrote this? Paul himself was beheaded in Rome. Nero laid the charge against him for him and, and Christians in general. There was a great persecution of Christians. Historians now say maybe not quite as great as we think. And here's a little sidelight, by the way, when you read history. Just like today, uh, the, those who come in leadership after often denigrate those who came before them for various political reasons. Historians are now believing that even Nero and some of the others, you know, because certain... Who's writing the history, in other words? I'm not saying he was a great guy. Or, but some are saying that maybe the persecution of the church didn't go quite like some of the church historians say, at least laying the blame. Anyway, that was a little sidelight. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For Paul, this would have been Rome. He was writing to the Romans, actually. Those who are living in Rome are reading this. They would say the Roman authorities. The same ones who had crucified their Lord. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God established the authority that crucified Christ. And Jesus even told Pilate, Pilate says, don't you know that I have the authority to crucify you or to let you go? And, and what did Jesus say? You have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. You can read that, I believe, in John 19. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opened the... Who had, has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive 
condemnation upon themselves. The link is so strong here that he says to oppose the powers that be is to oppose the authority and the sovereignty of God, to go against the will of God for your good. Now, of course, the issue is raised, what about civil disobedience? Well, the line is very, very clear. When the authority no longer does the will of God, when the authority that he has instituted causes you to disobey, forces you to disobey, enacts laws that would have you disobey, then you, you have to obey God, even as a consequence of your life. And we have an example of that in where? Daniel 3. Now, that's also been used. We must resist this vaccine and the mandates just as the three worthies did when they were called to bow down and worship an idol. Mandates doesn't call us to worship an idol. Vaccines doesn't cause us to worship an idol. It may be laying a foundation for that in mandates. It may be setting a precedent some are concerned about, about government control. And there may come a time in the future where that takes place. But those three worthies, they were actually government officials. Daniel was a government official. They were trained by the Babylonian University to be such. And they, as far as I know, lived their lives. When they came out of that fiery furnace protected by Christ, where did they go? What did they do? They probably continued, as far as I know, they continued to serve in the Babylonian government. What? They served in a government that was idolatrous? That did things that they didn't believe in? They, they wouldn't have practiced themselves? But unless the government is the law or causes you to directly that countermands the law of God, we're required to obey, even if it brings suffering upon ourselves. And where do we get that example? In Christ himself. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Now, we'd have to set that against the idea that they can do unjust things. What about the Japanese internment camps, World War II? And that's another thing about some of this loud cry against the vaccine. You know, if I go to look in your social media, am I seeing you crying out so loudly against other injustices, other threats to your personal liberty? Were you, uh, how do you feel about those Japanese internment camps? Historians would say that was wrong to do that. But it was for public safety, for the public good. Now, fortunately, people went along with it to great, suffering in themselves and their family, often, uh, deprivation certainly. And it lasted for, I don't remember the dates, but quite a long time. I think perhaps more than a year, perhaps two, I don't know. Um, if you were Japanese, and we can tell who the Japanese are by their facial features, Asian, you know, you're, you've got, especially in California in the West, they had these camps set up. What other things have the government done that's been persecutory or unjust? Let me read from here in the example of Christ. I'm going to pick up this um, quotation. If I can find it here, I had it set aside and now it hasn't come up again. I'm looking through my Facebook feed and um, because I did post on mandates and um, I made a comment. Looks like I'm still getting some others in response. This is from the Desire of Ages, um, page 509, paragraphs 3 and 4 by Ellen White. The government under which Jesus lived was corrupt and oppressive. On every hand were crying abuses. This wasn't even America. 
There's no comparison between Roman government and American government, really, at the time. Extortion, intolerance, and grinding cruelty. Now, some Americans would say they experienced that in their poverty and neglect, so on that they suffered from today. Yet the Savior attempted no civil reforms. He attacked no national abuses. And that would I, I would consider that the, he, he, Jesus would not be crying out against government mandates right now. He, he had another calling. He gave his voice to other things. And so think about that as we read here. He did not interfere with the authority or administration of those in power. He who was our example kept aloof from earthly governments, not because he was indifferent to the woes of men, but because the remedy did not lie in merely human and external measures. To be efficient, the cure must reach men individually and must regenerate the heart, not by the decisions of courts or councils or legislative assemblies, not by the patronage of worldly great men is the kingdom of Christ established, but by the implanting of Christ's nature in humanity through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I concentrate on the things I do in my messages. About the personal indwelling of the Holy Spirit, as your pastor is doing as well, the love of God, this, it's all relational. And when the relationship's right, the doctrine will be right, because then you're listening. We're listening to the truth. As many as received him, says, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here is the only power that can work the uplifting of mankind. And the human agency for the accomplishment of this work is the teaching and practicing of the word of God. So that's why I'm here today, fulfilling my calling as a preacher and teacher of the Word of God. And to the extent that I practice it, then I will also have power, the power of influence in my life. People will listen to me if they see the gospel working in my life. There's a, a street in Philadelphia, I believe it's called Kensington. It's a block avenue. You can put it in Kensington, I believe it's Kensington Avenue. You can put that into YouTube. Kensington Avenue, Philadelphia. And there's somebody there posting videos, 20, 25, 30-minute videos of driving around that block with the camera. What do you think you'll see? Yeah. It's, one, it's, one, it's, 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 it's appalling. It's unbelievable. It looks like a scene. The comment, comments on that video, people say, this looks like the walking dead. Zombies. Get his trash blowing in the breeze, strewn everywhere, garbage everywhere. There's some tents camped out, camping out against the fences. There's people leaning against the wall. But there's a lot of them doing what's called nodding. You know what nodding is? Nodding is, a, is a, something that heroin addict, addicts do. They'll be in a state. The head, the head will go down. They'll just stand there, and I'll give you an impression of it as a recovering addict, although I didn't do this much, but opiates, opiates do the same thing. And the reason this is happening so much is because one of the comments, uh, the fellow said, you can't buy a drug on the street without fentanyl being in it today. You know, and it's, it's a deadly, it's a deadly drug, and especially when it's in heroin. What it does, there, there'll be this nodding and just swaying just a little bit like this, but then they're, they're headed towards the ground. But then it'll go like this. The knees will be bent a little bit and they'll be all off kilter like this. And, and they'll, 
We're talking about standing like this for minutes longer, 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 just like this. Okay. And then they'll go and you'll see them one hand touching the ground. It's like an hour of slow motion getting there. And you can see it as he goes around the block that they're still there, same one still there. And he'll occasionally pause and focus on that one. And, and in that scene, there are others who are what we call relatively normal who are going about their business, going from somewhere or another, making their way through all of this. There's people sitting. They're, they're laying right on the curb next to the, next to the street. They're laying against buildings. You can tell by the state of their bodies and the state of their clothing that it's, you know, this is, this is an everyday experience for them. And the reason, why do I bring all this up in this context? She says here, here is the only power that can work the uplifting of humanity. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. When I saw that video, I, I just felt, what can you do? Because I've worked with addicts. I've been an addict. You know, what, what can you do? in the situation. Well, what happened to me is I received Christ. I went through a process of, of degradation. I went through a process of having turned here and turned there and not gotten any help. And one night I kneeled down and I said, I've tried everything else and maybe, maybe this. And the Lord began to speak to me. And I got up free from that addiction. It was a miracle. It was a miracle. And there was a process. I'm not saying there's not a process or not even a process for them, but there comes a point when regeneration, rebirth needs to take place. And I've sat in rooms with addicts and alcoholics. Some of them don't even know to this day exactly what happened to them, but they surrendered in the first step of the 12 steps. They, they saw that their life had become unmanageable and that they could not control it. The control was an illusion in their drug alcoholic state of mind. They had no control. And they, they turned their lives over to God. And that works with any other habit that has bound us. That's the message. Now we can say, <clears throat> perhaps God should, you know, why should we just trust a vaccine like it's going to be instant? Well, most of the doctors that I talk to say that we should do all the other preventative things too. Plenty of vitamin C, plenty of vitamin D, perhaps some zinc, and maybe, maybe a few other things. And the eight natural remedies, I can't I don't know if I can remember them all. Sunshine, fresh air, water exercise, rest, spiritual um, commitment, that if we practice these things, then we're in a healthier state of mind. Our, immune, our actual immune systems are built up. Uh, getting enough sunlight, of course, you get the vitamin D and so on like that. Um, it's, not a, it's not a singular approach. We, we shouldn't just take the vaccine and think that we have no more responsibility. There's many things to health that go into a complete package. The, the build upon the foundation, which is Christ. How do we build upon that foundation if we are the temple of God? Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, because God will punish those who practice evil through the state, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Did Jesus pay tax? Did they confront him once? Does your master pay tax? Peter spoke up and said, sure he does. Well, he answered in place of Jesus. So how did Jesus? Jesus is Lord, creator of heaven and earth. Every, every ruler, every authority, every government is under him, actually. Why, why should he have to pay? Shouldn't he be the recipient of all the honor and the glory? 
Shouldn't he be the recipient of everything that we give him? Everything that we have comes from him. We only return back what is yours, it says. King David himself said. So, Jesus says, go down there and get a fish. And he gets a fish and brings it back. And there's a coin, just a coin in the mouth of that fish. To pay. But Jesus paid the tax. He didn't say, I am Jesus. I'm not paying your tax. I don't have... Why, why should I pay the tax? There's nothing right in it. My rights are above your rights. Talk about rights. That leads me to the closing idea. And we'll get over here to Peter. 1 Peter 3.13 Now for those who are listening and who will be on, listening, hearing us on this podcast if I get it through, this is a Christian message. This is meant especially for those Christians uh, to support those who are uh, struggling with the idea of mandates or vaccination and also to those who are resisting it because they think that it's going to defile them or because they uh, have their rights and they think that resisting is about liberty. You know, uh, give me liberty or give me death. Well, a lot of them are going to die if we don't get the vaccine. It's a fact. They already have. First Peter 3.13 Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Now, read that in the context of what we said about the government, which is there to do for us for good. But even if you should suffer, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And then he quotes, And do not fear their intimidation, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. I believe it's good behavior in Christ to take the vaccine. I do. Uh, and uh, not only the vaccine, but other immunizations, if they have been proven effective. Is there some risk? Yes. There's a risk in every medication. There's a risk in riding a bicycle. I would like to see the statistics of comparative risk in general human behavior to the vaccine. I suspect that there's a lot of things people do every day that have much greater risk in them, statistically, than the vaccine. For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, to which also he went and made proclamation uh, to the dead, to those who had already died. He did that previously. We, well, I'll read this on too. This is back 4, verse 12. Behold, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. I, the outcome of all of this, to me, I see a great testing. A great testing of society, a great testing of man's humanity to man, a great testing, uh, an ethical, a moral, a spiritual testing 
of those who profess to follow Christ. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. I hear a lot of complaining. Whining. Charges made against each other. A lot of infighting. I don't hear a lot of rejoicing that we are privileged to suffer for Christ's sake. Even, even if you believe that the mandate the mandate is persecution, and I don't think it is. I don't think that the hospitals and the doctors are in collusion with the government to reduce the population, as some have charged. Some say in their conspiracy theories that China invented this to reduce the population. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Make sure that none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, for it is to glorify God in his name. And that's what happened at the cross. Glorify me, Father, Jesus prayed, with the glory that I had with you from the beginning. And then the Father says, I will glorify. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Christ says he despised the shame of the cross. There's this great contrast between the shame that Jesus was going through, the very shame that he experienced was the glory of God. It was revealed. There was no greater revelation of God's glory, if you understand glory as the self-sacrificing love of God, than the shame of Calvary. We have no greater opportunity to glorify God than when we patiently bear suffering because we are Christians, because we're following Christ. There is no greater... Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that martyrdom, suffering for Christ even unto death, was the greatest gift that God could give a person. Lord, bless me. <laughs> okay, you're going to die. Yeah. Not, a, not necessarily a good way either. You know? You're going to die. You're going to, you're going to suffer what your Lord suffered. You're going to die in humiliation. You're going to be counted as worthless. Nobody's going to value your death. You're going to be like many of those missionaries who were cast aside and their bones bleached in the sun. Nobody even knows where some of them are buried. You know, you're not going to be praised for your great sacrifice. But there's a reward for you in heaven you know, that nobody can take away. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? People think quite a bit of obeying the law of God. I don't know how many think of obeying the gospel of God, the good news of God. And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? He's quoting from the Old Testament. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. I see many today who, rather than taking these truths to heart, they're fully and completely committed to self-protection at any cost to others. And that's selfishness, and that's pride. And how, do you, how will you know it? You'll know it by their demanding spirit. Pride has a demanding spirit. Selfishness has a demanding spirit. And when somebody is continually demanding their rights and demanding that their needs be met, you can know that the love of Christ really isn't dwelling in their hearts. They're, they're demanding something for themselves, even if they're demanding something for their family, or they're demanding freedom for our church. You know, 
the demand is really, you, you can't worship God with a demanding spirit. Um, we live in perilous times and the Bible doesn't say, oh, well, don't worry, everything's going to be easy. No, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The word there, believe, is trust. I'll carry you through it. He told the disciples that I'll carry you through this time of the cross when every hope is extinguished, when you can't see beyond, you know, when it all appears darkness and all is lost because I'm not the Messiah that you were looking for, when you're tempted to lose every faith and hope in me because I'm not who you expected me to be. You know, will your love per persevere? Will you still believe that I'm your Savior? Now is the time to know Him. He said even in John 17, 3 there in this, in this chapter, to know God and His Son whom He has sent. That's eternal life. It's not a knowledge of mere intellectual understanding. It's a knowledge of intimacy. It's the knowledge that a child has of his father. I was at the church up in Taylor Mill not long ago and we were talking about faith and just at the time there was a father next to me with I guess probably a year and a half old child on his knee and the child was just kind of dangling there and playing and everything and you could tell that there was there was no worry there was no there wasn't even a think about will my father keep me or hold me it was all taken right there for granted this is my father and I'm his child and there was an innocence and Jesus says except you become as little children you will not inherit the kingdom of God I would like to see many of those who, who are anti-vax, anti-mandate, so on, simply to trust their Heavenly Father, trust God that He'll lead us through it. And, in, and if we're trusting Him, then when somebody says, I'm going to force you to disobey God in your conscience with these laws that I'm going to enact, then you have to say, I can't follow it because you know, I'm, I'm a child of the King. I'm, I'm building on this foundation. As Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, then would my servants fight? Why are the servants fighting now if this kingdom is not of this world? Uh, let's fight for the sake of the gospel. Let's press forward. It's, it's, we should have strong desires for God and for the truth. We should have uh, fervent prayers, but they should not be demands. Demand betrays a, a doubt in the sovereignty of God. Demands say that we're not really quite trusting him as we should. So uh, let us plead but not demand for the mercies of God as we go forward. And uh, we have those promises. Lo, I'm with you even unto the end, Jesus said. That's the word for today. I hope it, uh, you find a blessing in it. And, uh, we take it to heart.